Well, this week we come to our 28th sermon in our Suggested Topic Sermon Series. And I've got a little surprise for you this week. Everybody looks, what, what? The, the eighth of 14 in the category of Christian living. You say, wait, I thought it was 13. It was 13, and it just became uh, 14 at our last session meeting because they put in a request for another topic. So it's not the one we're doing today, but it's one that, was, uh, that, was, that came in late. So now it's, uh, it's 14 in this particular uh, section of Christian living. And uh, I'll be doing that sermon in the, in the weeks to come that you won't get into it now. Um, but last week, we looked at a topic that relates especially to us as Reformed believers, uh, Reformed churches. And that was the problem, if you recall, of knowledge stored versus knowledge applied. And, you know, we saw that that was a problem because as Reformed believers, we're those who have returned to the Scriptures and we've come back to the truth and we have the truth, we love the truth. But sometimes people come who just love the system of truth and they don't really love God, they don't really delight in Him. And sometimes we can have a tendency to be that way even when we do know the Lord. And so it's something we have to guard against of knowing stuff and really it should as we saw last week, if we know these things and we believe them to be true, it should change us completely according to what we know. So we need to, to have our, our, the application keep up with what we know. But that, it doesn't mean we should be ignorant. Anyway, I don't need to preach the whole sermon again. Uh, this week, we have another topic that is specifically related to Reformed churches. A suggested topic was actually stated like this. I didn't give the whole title because it, it would be long in one title. It's pretty long as it is. But growing in gratitude and shaking off arrogance, especially with thanking God for our robust Reformed heritage. Okay, that was the topic that uh, that I was given for this week. Now, if you are familiar with the Reformation, it was a glorious movement that took place in the 16th century when there was a massive return to biblical teaching and practice in the church and a number of nations in the world. It was clearly a powerful work of the Lord that shook the world and that continues to bear fruit to this day. I have recently been amazed with just having it before us of how many Reformed churches there are all over the world. You know, having uh, Lucas and Victoria from, from Brazil coming and telling us that, you know, there's more churches, Reformed churches there than there are here. And having uh, uh, Claire and David from China coming in and telling us about underground churches in China that are growing and flourishing and multiplying, that are Reformed churches. It's very interesting to see all of this. And the Ukraine, we have... Uh, a couple of families from there, and of course, and, and so many of them that were actually going to churches that have the same confession that, that we have, though in a different language. Uh, it's a tremendous encouragement to see that God is He's working all over the world and in, in bringing people to a robust faith that the fruits of the Reformation still continue of His work in that. So truly, we need to give thanks to the Lord for restoring us to the faith that was once delivered to the saints by our Lord through his faithful apostles and prophets. Even if we see things eroding here at this time, there's other places where things are going in the very opposite direction. But in giving thanks, we must also beware, as this topic suggests, that we do not become arrogant about our heritage. Understand, however, that the arrogance that I speak of is not defined in the same way that the world, under Satan's influence, would define it. I wonder if you know what I mean when I say that. The world would say that it was arrogant to say that what I already did, that the Reformation was a glorious work of God in behalf of His church that restored true worship doctrine and practice that is according to God's revealed will. Say, that's arrogant. How can you say that? Because God did it. 
I can say that about what happened in Josiah's day, in Hezekiah's day. I can say that in various times where God has worked in history. Uh, I remember going to a Sunday school class soon after I became a believer and hearing the class discuss how the, the Apostle Paul was an arrogant man because he had confidence that he was right and other people were wrong. And that was their perspective. And you see, that's a completely distorted perspective. Paul was actually a very humble man who considered himself to be the chief of sinners. But he had received the truth, and he knew that the truth was, was the truth. And he preached it as an apostle because he was proclaiming, thus says the Lord. They said that because these, this class that I went to, it was in my mom's church, it was when I went home the first summer after I became a Christian. They said that because they did not understand that Paul while indeed boasting in the Lord whose doctrine he had received, was not boasting in himself at all. They did not understand that he was glorying in what God had revealed and in the gracious work that God had done in saving sinners like him, who could not save themselves. It is a false humility then to look at the work of God and say, oh, it's really nothing. To look at the Reformation and to start attacking it and poking holes. Sure, there was things that were, there's always stuff that's not as it should be. But to make that the predominant theme of a great work of God that was a work of mercy and power. Same thing when Jesus came and the church, the early church. Sure, you can point out and say, oh, look, there were problems here. Look at the problems they had in Corinth. Lots of problems. But it was a glorious work of God and it should be acknowledged so. Not in a not boasting about ourselves, but glorying in the cross. That's what Paul said, that we don't glory in the flesh, but we do, but we glory in the cross of Jesus Christ. When he does a good work, we're to glory in that work and to give thanks for it, never in ourselves. But obviously, those who do not acknowledge God do not acknowledge that God has done anything. They say, well, you're just talking about what you did because they don't claim that God did anything. So we're just boasting about ourselves when we speak of how he brought people out of the darkness to the light and and, and such things as that. We must not let them make us embarrassed or ashamed to glory in the work of our Lord, to glory in his work, to glory in his work in restoring the church, to glory in it as a marvelous reformation and to give thanks for it. Now, at the same time, there is a temptation in our flesh that is always there against which we must guard, to act as if we were restored because of something in us, some way that we were better than others and therefore were restored. And we do do that, you see, at various times and in various degrees. God had to warn us against doing that. We read in Ezekiel 36 where there was a warning that, you know, not to boast in these things, that you will loathe yourselves when, when I restore you. And you go to a place, I started to read Deuteronomy 7 for our Old Testament reading. It's not because you were greater than the other nations. It's not because you were better, superior morally to them. But it was because of the mercy of the Lord that you were delivered. You were the least among the nations, God says. And I brought you out. And when you go into the land, he says, don't boast as if this was something you did. And in the gospel, when uh, in, in Romans, in, in uh, chapter 11, I almost used that passage for, for this sermon. You, you have the, uh, the Gentiles that are, are grafted in when Israel had turned away. What a glorious work of God that was when the nations came from the darkness to the light. And he could say, they came from the darkness to the light. And they could say, I came from the darkness to the light without boasting. They're boasting in the Lord, not in themselves. You see, but he warns them. Be careful that you don't become arrogant because then I'll cut you off like I did Israel who became arrogant. They said, we're the people of God. And they felt that they were, even though they were not really trusting in his saving work to them. So it's completely contrary to boast to the very reformed doctrine that we claim to believe. Because that doctrine itself teaches us the salvation of the Lord. It's not of us. And so we're actually boasting about something that we're actually betraying when we boast about it as something that that we did. The the Reformed doctrine teaches us that we contributed sin to the equation (laughs) and God created grace where the sin abounded, grace far more abounded. And, And he brought us out and delivered us by his sheer mercy. 
So again, our Old Testament reading from Ezekiel 36 speaks of restoring Israel after he had delivered them from the exile because of their sins. He delivered them into exile. About eight centuries before Jesus came, God began to raise up enemies who would, who, who would over the next two centuries bring such blows against his people because of their idolatry that would at last bring about the demise of Jerusalem and the Holy Temple and that would carry his people into exile for 70 years. Then in Ezekiel 36, we read about how God would not leave them there. Why? Oh, because you are so good. No, because of God's holy name. He would restore them by grace, not because they deserved it, not because of any merit in them. And when he did, he would give them his spirit who would actually change them, change their hearts, cause them to see how wicked they had been, to loathe themselves. Those who were truly restored would return to him, not boasting, but loathing themselves for what they were. The powerful grace of God, boasting in the powerful grace of God that had rescued them. Let him that glories, glory in the Lord, the scriptures say. So the Protestant Reformation was also a great restoration of the church when God brought many people from many nations back to him out of spiritual exile into which they had fallen. You're to glory in the work of the Lord without boasting in yourself. That work of the Lord. To help you do that, I want to go to Revelation 11, a passage that many, if not most of the Reformers, understood to be actually a prophecy about their own restoration after it happened. They didn't see it as a prophecy beforehand. They looked at prophecy, which is when we understand it better, after it was fulfilled. Now, whether they are right that this prophecy was written specifically about the Reformation or not, this passage certainly speaks to how we ought to respond to a great work of deliverance that God does. Just like Ezekiel 36 teaches us how to respond to whatever great work God does in delivering His people in history. So whether it talks about events that occurred in the first century when Christ restored His church, some people see Revelation that way, or whether it speaks to the Protestant Reformation, or whether it speaks to some great deliverance that's yet future to us, we can apply it to the Protestant Reformation, which is the topic that I have been uh, asked to preach about today. So listen carefully as I read this chapter to you now, Revelation chapter 11, 1 through 19. And before I actually read it, I want to just mention that back in chapter 10, you have a picture right at the beginning of that chapter of the Lord coming to deliver his people. There's the angel of the Lord that is standing with one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. So it's a huge image that's there that he's come to, to act in behalf of his people because they're in such a desperate condition. And then he, uh, he, he delivers them. And uh, this is chapter 11 is, is talking about that deliverance that came from the Lord. So uh, it, it gets very, very low, just like it did with the exile. The people were all, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed, the people were all in exile, and then God delivered them. Well, Revelation 11 talks about the same kind of situation, perhaps in the church. So Revelation 11, beginning in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty-two months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit 
will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which, is, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the graves. And, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So in other words, they wouldn't give them a decent burial. They would be rejoicing in their demise. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In, that same, in the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your, your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hell. Hail. Thanks be to God for his holy word. Let's consider how this applies to us as members of that part of the church that the Lord restored to himself so marvelously in the 16th century, the, the reformation of the church. We'll simply work through the text here as we go along and draw application of what is, what is presented to us here. So the first thing we see is a description of things that are very much like the condition of the church before the Reformation. Again, whether many were right that this was actually was a specific prophecy about that or another, that's not the main point here, but it is certainly a time that is very, very much like that. Revelation 11, 1 and 2, I'll read that part again. Then I was given a reed, this is John, of course, like a measuring rod, and the angel stood saying, Rise and measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, but leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles." And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now understand, okay, we're looking at Revelation. Understand that this book of Revelation uses symbols of the temple and many other things to describe spiritual realities in heaven and in, in, in history, I should say, really. So we see this from the very start Okay, where we have John, and he's there uh, before the Lord, and he sees Christ, a, a, a vision of Christ, walking among seven golden lampstands and holding seven stars in his hand. He is told that the lampstands are the seven churches, and the stars are the angels or messengers of those churches. The whole book utilizes imagery like that to represent spiritual realities. Obviously, the church is not a lampstand. It's not saying that the church turned into a lampstand. It's using a lampstand to represent what the church is and a light to the world. And it's not saying that stars were the messenger of the church. It's, it's like these, this is imagery that she used. So what we have here is... The, in, in our reading that we just did in, in, uh, in Revelation 11, is the temple used to represent the church, which it does all through Scripture, doesn't it? 
We have seen in Hebrews that the true temple or tabernacle of God is the people, the church, among whom God dwells through Jesus Christ, their head. This imagery we have here in Revelation 11. Here John is called to measure the temple and the altar and those who worship there. These are the people who have been reconciled to God through Jesus Christ at the true altar through the sacrifice that Jesus offered for our sins. These are the true believers who have repented of their sins and are following Jesus, the Lamb of God, as their Savior. They are leaning on Him, trusting Him as the one who delivers them, saves them from their sin, to make them the true worshipers of God. They are measured off from others to distinguish them from those that are in the court of the temple. The ones in the court are those who are associated with the church and yet are unbelievers. They're part of the visible church, but they're not in the sanctuary of God's people. They are called Gentiles, which when used referring to the temple, refers to unbelievers. You have that designation. Paul uses it sometimes. He refers to, he says to people who were Gentiles, when you were Gentiles. Now you're the Israel of God. You were Gentiles, and then when you were converted, you became the Israel of God. So it's used to show people who are not believers. They're not to be measured. John was not to measure them, because although in name they are the people of God, in other words, they profess to be part of the church, profess to be members of the church, they are not reconciled to God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now the imagery here portrays the wretched condition of the church as it was prior to the Reformation, as it was prior to other times when the church was restored. Note that the Gentiles, the unbelieving ones, are said to tread the holy city of God, the city of God, underfoot. In other words, the unbelievers are the ones who are in control. They are in the seats of power and authority in the city of God. The church has been given over to them. As Gentiles, they have brought in all kinds of superstition and idolatry when we look at it in terms of the Reformation. If we look at it in terms of the first century, then this would be actual Gentiles, Romans, who are coming into the temple and defiling it and so on. Uh, So again, these, these things could be understood, interpreted in different ways. But when we look at this as pertaining to Reformation, we see it in this way. So prior to the Reformation, the mass, priests... Prayers to the saints, graven images, icons, indulgences, lying wonders, all kinds of superstitions. If you pass through a door, then you would have salvation or all kinds of different, different twists. All bogus ways of salvation were brought in. The Gentiles defile the temple by bringing in all kinds of superstitions. And the Apostle Paul said, in 2 Thessalonians 2, that before the Lord returned, there would be a great falling away of the church. And he says it of the church, and that the, gen, the, the Antichrist would appear. So one who says, I am a servant of Christ, I am one of God's people, but who is in fact one who is a, a usurper of Christ in place of Antichrist. So, so uh, Paul, Paul said that that would happen in history, in the fu- future to him. This appears to be the great apostasy that would come when the Lord returned. Because, of course, if we look at it as the first century, then that's not someone who pretended to be in the place of God in a, or, or in the, an Antichrist. They didn't claim anything about Christ. But in the Reformation, you have where... The Pope is making that kind of a claim. So, and note the duration of this teaching or treading underfoot of the holy city of God. Again, not a physical city, but the church by these Gentiles. It is said to be 42 months, which is the same as 1,260 days. 30 times 42 is 1,260. 
So they had 30-month days, and uh, you know they, they added an extra month when there was a... So, so uh, 30 times 42, 1,260. This can even be understood in prophecy to represent years. So 1,260 years. Now, that the church could fall under such a wretched condition, here's where we apply this. That the church of Jesus Christ could fall under such a wretched condition ought to greatly humble us. When we look at the church today, it should humble us. Those who profess the name of God, most of them have no knowledge of the salvation of Jesus Christ. They've got everything else. Like Israel, when we understand, it makes us loathe ourselves and be ashamed of what we were. But you see, we are even worse than the in, the, in this time now in the New Testament is those who have had the blessings of the new covenant and fell into such a low condition as it was just prior or in the early part, very early days of the 16th century. In the New Testament, we have all the privileges of a, the glorious gospel revealed. We have the mystery of salvation revealed. It was a mystery in the old covenant. The Son of God made flesh and crucified for us to atone for our sin. What a wonderful revelation. We have, the, we have Him raised from the dead to declare His victory over sin and death and to call us to be raised from spiritual death to serve Him with the promise of a spiritual resurrection to come along with the new heavens and the new earth. We have the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We have the completed testimony of God's word now that we hold the scriptures in our hands. We have the church with her fellowship, with her appointed ordinances and promised blessing with Christ as her head. That God declared that there would be a great falling away of the church, that the ascendancy of the Antichrist, that he would ascend to sit in the temple Again, the church, as if he was God, and to bring forth false ways of salvation, lying wonders and stuff, testify to what we are and how much we need God's grace, that we could fall into such a condition. How inappropriate it is for those who have been delivered from that to boast as if they delivered themselves. Such boasting is highly inappropriate, and it betrays a failure to understand the gospel of grace that is not of ourselves, but of God's doing. Brothers and sisters, the point, we have no grounds for boasting about the Reformation because before the Reformation, the church was in this dreadfully low condition. There was no one that was standing strong. And I don't mean that in a super literal sense, of course. There were, there were faithful people. Just like in the times when Israel was in their lowest place, there were faithful people that were there. But uh, the, indeed, the Lord, if the Lord had not intervened as He did of old to preserve a remnant according to election, we would have all perished. And that's been the condition of God's people at so many points in history. It's crazy to think about how many times it looked like they were, they were done. They were gone. And every single time, God comes forth and delivers So see how our Lord graciously preserved us by His might and power during that 1,260 days or years, as I think it it uh, should be understood here. During the entire times that the Gentiles trampled the holy city underfoot, the Lord maintained two witnesses to testify of His truth. The Lord promises to give these two witnesses power during the 1,260 days or the years of the reign of the Antichrist. You can see that in verse 3. And I will, give you, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now the sackcloth shows that they are in a condition of poverty and mourning because of the dominion of superstition. But they're given power to prophesy in that situation, to speak the truth in that situation, because God enabled them. God empowered them. 
there are said to be two witnesses because that is what is required to confirm every fact. The truth, at least two witnesses. But there are said to be only two because they are few. They are a minority. They are weak. And again, whether this is specifically talking about the Reformation time, it's the idea of what it's talking about. Two witnesses, every fact confirmed by two witnesses, but only two because they're, they're in a very very desolate situation. They're in, in sackcloth. They go on only because the Lord sustains them. How did their voice keep on going and testifying to the truth when they were being slaughtered? Okay, this is, it was, it was God's doing. They are described by familiar imagery under the Old Testament to remind us that they are sustained by God's power in the face of all opposition. Look at the beautiful language that is used here. You see, you have to know your Old Testament to understand Revelation because these things are not taken literally, but they're taken as a representative of God's sustaining of his, in this case, of these prophets. Zechariah's lampstand, fueled by oil from two olive trees, is referenced. That was another passage I thought about reading. To, to show that these witnesses minister in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Zechariah 4, 6, what are the words that God gives us? With, with that lamp, with, with the olive trees and the, and the oil and all. He says, not, what does this show? Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. What sustains these prophets in their prophecy? It's the oil of God, God's spirit. There is no room for boasting here, only for thanksgiving to God. He is the one who empowered them to testify. What else are we told about them? They're further described with imagery reminiscent of Elijah and Elisha, as well as Moses and Aaron, who boldly and powerfully testified for God because God enabled them. Verse 5 says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now, we read of that in the very ministry of Elijah and Elisha, do we not? They were not in seats of power, right? I mean, who was reigning? You know, Ahab, was he in favor of God? No, he had Baal as the official God that was worshipped during his day. He had all the prophets of Baal that were supported by Israel, by the people of God. And yet, Elijah was going forth in power, testifying, and God did things like, I mean, he sent 50 men to arrest him, Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. He sent them 50 more. Same thing happened. 50 more came. They said, don't, don't, don't do what you did to the other guys. And, and you know, anyway, we'll go into the whole story. But uh, verse 6 says, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. Elijah did that. And they have power over, there was a drought for three years. And, and they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And of course, Moses and Aaron did that, did they not? So in other words, they're testifying in the spirit and power of Elijah and Elisha, of Moses and Aaron, God's witnesses. These men in, during this time were, were by God's spirit proclaiming the word of God. Not that they could do these things willy-nilly, but they did them under God's power. Again, in Revelation, it is more spiritual. Speaking of their power, the power of their words that tormented those who were in opposition, in the, immersed in their superstitions. Now, who do we think of here? We think of people like the Waldensians when we think of these two witnesses that go all the way back when... Some of these superstitions first started. They were a barb in the West. And there were other movements in the East that testified against the, some of the superstitions there. And of course, there came along later John Wycliffe in England, John Huss in Bohemia. And there are many followers that God enabled to bear witness to the true way of salvation in a face of, uh, in, when the church was flooded. The whole court was under the Gentile superstition and false worship papal authority and idolatry. Though these witnesses were persecuted and often executed, this powerful witness could not be stopped because the Lord was with them. 
they just kept coming back. Our family, we've been reading a book about the Waldensians. It's really powerful about how they stood up against some of these errors and they wanted to crush them so badly. They were labeled as heretics and they tried to completely destroy them. And they, they couldn't. They couldn't do it. However, to humble us even more, this is all of God, there was a three and a half year period just before the Reformation when the witnesses were almost completely silenced. So we saw that the church could fall under the dominion of the Gentiles like it did in their superstitions instead of the salvation of God. That was a travesty. But now it's the point where it goes so far that it's like the witnesses die. Okay, let's let's read this. The Antichrist and his minions put forth their strength to suppress the witnesses when their testimony was complete and that they began to testify against the whole system of corruption even against the Pope himself, there was uh, early on some discussion of that. So uh, Revelation 11, 7 and 8, it says, When they finish their testimony, these two witnesses, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. So the protest against worship of the saints and other superstitions prevailed for many centuries. But it was not until the 12th century that the suspicion arose that the papacy was perhaps the Antichrist. Therefore, in A.D. 1179, there was a reaction in the 12th century. There was a reaction. The Third Lateran Council, General Council, declared war against these witnesses, whom they labeled, of course, as heretics. Their goal was extermination. That was what they set out to do. The Waldensians, the Abigenses were in their sights, as well as uh, the, later on, the uh, followers of John Wycliffe, the Lollards, and the Hussites, who, who came along, I say, later. Now, of course, this is using language of symbolism. And though many were literally killed, the killing of the two witnesses speaks of silencing their testimony. That was the goal. E.B. Elliot says, There is but one period in European history which can at all answer this condition. That is the opening of the 16th century, just before the Reformation. The Waldensians were too feeble to fight And the Hussites were divided and worn out and were reduced to silence. Where before, they could not be silenced. There was this period that came for just a short time. Under Pope Julius II and Leo X, this great Lateran Council, it was held over hundreds of years, right? They would have different meanings of it. But it was continuing on and uh, from, from 1512 to 1517, when it was held in Julius II and Leo X were the popes that presided, its purpose was set forth in a papal bull that called for, quote, the total extirpation, not of the political schisms only, which then disturbed the peace of the church at Pisa, but of heresies, so-called. That's what they called At this council, there were ambassadors, from all over the world, including patriarchs from Alexandria, from the east, and Antioch. At the eighth session held in December of 1513, those opposing the papacy were called to come and testify, and no one went. Before, and at later times, they would call for people that wanted to present their doctrine and people would go even when it might mean that they, were do- they would be killed. Like John Wycliffe had done that. John Huss had done that. They had gone and said, this is the truth and they had presented it very boldly. Now, the offer was given and no one came. The witnesses were, as it were, dead. On May 5th, 1514, the papal order declared to great applause in this Lateran Council, this great Lateran Council, there is an end of resistance to the papal rule and religion. 
Opposers, there exist no more. And again, he said, the whole body of Christendom is now seen to be subjected to the head, to thee. And of course, he's talking about the Pope. That he's there, that we're, everybody is united together. This is just as is described in verse 9 through 10. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies of these two, two witnesses three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into the grave. Now again, days often refer to years, three and a half years. And those who dwell on the land will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. They had been so distressed by the witnesses, but now the witnesses were silenced. How low the church fell on this occasion. Surely the great falling away prophesied in 2 Thessalonians 2 had come as far as the apostate church was concerned. The ones they called heretics were dead. Their testimony was exterminated. They were rejoicing. What happens next, however, was all of God. Verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here, have fellowship with heaven. They ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now that the witnesses were revived after three and a half days or years, three and a half years from, from May 5th to 1514, when the Lateran Council celebrated the death of the heretics, brings us to what? October 31st, 1517. The day that they had the council that rejoiced that the, that the opposition was dead, Exactly three and a half years after that is October 31st, 1517, the date on which Martin Luther nailed the 95 Thesis to the church door at Wittenberg to announce the topic of his lecture that week. As most of you know, this is hailed as the birth of the Reformation. It was a standard practice for Luther to post his lectures, his lecture topics on the church door. That was what was kind of a custom at the time. But this was this particular lecture was the, the topics were copied and with a printing press and they were sent all over the world and resonated with the hearts of many who had been silenced during this period. The language in our text speaks of a tremendous upset to the apostate church described in the prophetic way that many things like this are described, uh, like when Jesus came and the and, and Peter was preaching, you know, the sun and the moon are darkened and all of these things. It uses that kind of language as an earthquake that brought death and terror. The whole world was shaken. The analyst Ranaldus of the Roman Catholic Church said, How ill, alas, these most holy laws against relapsing heretics were observed appears from the hydra birth of the Lutheran heresy so soon after. He's lamenting, we thought it was gone. And now they're alive again with more power than they ever had before. Though Pope Leo at first felt secure, Tetzel, Cardinal Cajetan, Eck, and Miltids all looked on this, all looked on what was happening and trembled. Now I agree that as we look at these things, it's difficult to tell if Revelation is an explicit prophecy about the Reformation. But again, that does not have to be so for us to use this passage in the way that we're looking at it. What is evident is that the Reformation was not done by man's agency or power, whether we have Scripture to tell us that or not. Luther had no idea that his weekly lecture topics would go around the world and awaken and unite the, to action those who had seen the same errors that Luther had exposed and had the same concerns. It was clearly a divine work. Back in chapter 10, I mentioned that the angel of the Lord stood with, to intervene. Many see this angel as Christ showing his sovereignty with one foot on the land and the other on the sea. 
he appears also with a little book in his hand, a book that's given to John. He and his word are given are, are the agents of the Reformation, along with the Holy Spirit, as represented by the olive trees, the lampstands to furnish the true witnesses that bring forth the word of God and bring forth uh, life out of death. So the witnesses are alive again with great power to testify against the heresies. The Reformation was a powerful work of our sovereign Lord. If we boast about it as if it is something that we did or that men did, then we don't understand it at all. If we boast about any of the great working of God in the history of the world, we don't understand it at all as the work of God. Let us rather be thankful for what God did for the sake of His church. It was all of grace. Brothers and sisters, where would you be if time and time again the Lord had not restored His church? If He had not done it at the time of the Reformation? What superstitions there would be if there had been no restoration? What superstition instead of the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and His way of salvation? There would be candle lighting. There would be performances of all kinds of washing and uh, bowing to images and worshiping bread and wine and following traditions of men and lighting candles to bring people out of purgatory. A system with no assurance because it leaves salvation in the hands of human priests whose sacrifices are offered over and over again and can never save. A system devoid of the life-giving Spirit who enables us to know our Lord to glory in Him, to fellowship in His suffering, to lay down our lives for His sake and for one another, to serve one another. What ignorance in the Word of God and in the way of salvation would have been ours? Let us give thanks to our God and to His Christ. Hear the summons of the seventh angel. Revelation eleven fifteen. Then the seventh angel sounded. And this is in the wake, you see, of these um, prophets that have been raised again. The voices heard that had been silenced. They had been dead. The prophets had been dead. And now they were alive. We're not talking about two individual people. We're talking about those testifying against these superstitions. And now that testimony has been born again. So 1115. Then the, then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And He shall reign forever and ever. Now that happened in a short time that the um, different kingdoms began to declare that that they were in fact Protestant. And it was actually a movement, you see, that where where they began to come into the visible uh, ministry visibly to be seen. Verse 16, And the twenty-four angels who sat before God on the thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Though we live presently in days of declension here in this country, still we see that the gospel continued to spread into all the world, to the consternation of the enemies of our Lord. The nations are still coming to Christ today. His name is being praised in heaven and it is being praised on earth. It is by His great power that His reign is established, and it is for us to give thanks to our God. Each Lord's Day, we gather together to give praise and thanks to His name. Verse 19 closes out the chapter with the reminder that the temple in heaven is opened up. Christ opened it. When His gospel is believed, we are brought to Him. Revelation eleven nineteen. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of His covenant was seen in the temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. We are said to be seated with Him in the heavenly places. 
Heaven is open to us. Jesus Christ has ascended there. He is the head of the church. The church is now in heaven in her head and on earth in the members that are still here serving God and worshiping Him. We are now seated in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The way of God's salvation, the temple, the spiritual temple has been opened. And you see, it was closed when the testimony was shut down. And now it has been raised up again. Not completely closed, you understand. But uh, we're exhorted that if we be risen with Christ, that we ought to seek those things that are above where Christ is. Heaven is open to us. Now, if we will busy ourselves remembering not only our Lord's work on the cross, but also His gathering and preserving of His church into His heavenly temple, then we will see that our salvation is all the work of His grace. We should not think that only the cross is the work of His grace, but the cross as well is the gathering in of His people who are dead and who are made alive. If we stay busy remembering that and thanking Him for that and living in real communion with our triune God, we will have no time for arrogance. Salvation is God's gracious work. It's not our doing. We, are, we should be ashamed when we look at ourselves and what we have done. The preservation of His church is also His gracious work. Let us rejoice then and be glad in it. Please stand and let's pray. Oh, gracious Heavenly Father, how we thank You for the gracious work that You have done in calling Your people out of sin and darkness and out of superstition and idolatry to believe the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. How could it be that such a glorious gospel was hidden away during those years just prior to the Reformation. We see, Lord, that there was no one who rose up to testify of it. Certainly there was a person here or there in this community, in that house. There were those who, were, uh, who, who understood the truth and who believed. But, Father, we see that it was not the official, visible position anywhere that it had been, it had been effectively silenced. But we thank you, Lord, that you did not leave it to remain silenced for long. That you showed us how miserable our estate is, how weak we are, just like you showed that to your people when the temple was destroyed and they were driven into exile and their enemies came and trampled underfoot everything. Father, you're the one who brought forth your kingdom and who raised up your people to testify of your gospel and to believe your gospel and to be saved by the gospel. It is not of our doing. It is all of your doing. And we praise you and we give thanks to your name. Hallelujah. The Lord God omnipotent reigneth forever and ever. We praise you, O Lord, that, that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Christ. And we pray that your work would continue to go forth and that we would see the, the, the visible outworking of that great blessing that we would see many people to bow before you, O Lord, and nations to come as nations, officially declaring that they are your people. We have so little of that today, but there is no reason for us to think that it will not happen again by your mighty hand. For Lord, you do these things. You are the, you are the Lord. You are the one for whom nothing is impossible. There would be no church at all if you had not done these glorious things. And so we praise you, Lord God, for all that you have done in delivering your people and your church. Fill us with gratitude. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.